You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Sid Brooks. Um, he had, I know him because of his work in not in bankruptcy, uh, but in Russia. Uh, our paths have cro- crossed a number of times. Um, but he's had a life as a bankruptcy judge for uh, what 28 years, yeah. and before that worked as a lawyer for many years. Um, but has spent a lot of time going back and forth between Russia, working with judges, helping them to see that judges potentially can, can be independent. Uh, I don't think we're quite there yet in Russia. Um, but he's going to tell us a little bit about some of his experiences. So, thank you. I I can project, but does this actually work? Yes, yeah, sure. nope. That's okay. Can you hear me? If I speak like I am speaking right now, okay. Then we'll go we'll go with that. Um, first of all, uh, I must tell you group I'm speaking with uh, are people who uh, study, uh, research, uh, have become uh, well recognized as, as folks who have expertise in the area of Russia uh, and uh, the former Soviet uh, Union. And so I'm a little bit intimidated um, because I think you uh, have certain uh, skills and background that I don't have, uh, but I'm going to share with you my experiences and relatively narrow legal work uh, area that I've had with uh, primarily Russia, but I've worked with uh, some of the other uh, former Soviet uh, republic, uh, uh, republics and, uh, and Eastern European uh, courts uh, in the past. Uh, let me first start out by saying, however, I want to thank uh, Professor Henley for inviting me here. Um, frankly, I feel honored and I feel even more intimidated because uh, Professor Henley is one of the real uh, icons in the area of uh, Russian law. Uh, she knows more, writes more, is um, very much highly respected throughout the entire uh, country and, and internationally for her expertise in her studies and her productivity in the area of uh, Russian law, uh, legal reform, uh, topics such as that. And so I thank you for inviting me, and, uh, uh, and, and I want you to know that with her, you're in really good company. Uh, okay, uh, let, me, let me start out here. This, this uh, presentation is going to be in kind of in two parts. <clears throat> I'm going to follow somewhat uh, this PowerPoint that I put together uh, some time ago and I've used up until a year and a half ago. Uh, but because of the group I'm talking to, I want to shift gears partway through and make sure that I hit certain topics that I think are of particular importance and value for our discussions. Um, so it's, it's going to kind of come in two parts. And uh, second of all, let me tell you, I want to leave time for questions and answers. I think that 
a really good tool uh, for exchanging information and working with the uh, information and history uh, that's most important to you and it helps me focus on the things that are uh, more with worthwhile for you. Um, we're going to talk about my narrow view as a federal bankruptcy judge who started working in Russia in 1991, a landmark period of time, when things started changing in a dramatic and rapid fashion and in a significant and substantive manner. Um, I have been able to work with the primarily judges, but I've also worked with uh, various different law schools in Russia on the, er on the issues of bankruptcy law, business law, commercial law, some property law, and court management and case administration. So I don't have the solid, um, extensive background that so many of you have in Russian history, Russian culture, Russian studies. Um, but I've managed to pick some up over the years, and, and so I, I can somewhat blend it. But I want you to uh, realize uh, I'm giving you my personal story and, and as I was able to observe it and be part of um, but I invite other views and I also invite questions if you are just bursting with a question on a topic that I happen to be discussing then burst and go ahead and ask the question and we'll deal with it but I do hope to save time uh, for the end so we can have more discussion Okay, um, when I first went over there, it was still effectively the Soviet Union. As you well know, there was that trans transition period, a period of great chaos, a, great, uh, peri a period of a great uncertainty. Um, the country arguably was falling apart. Uh, certainly the government was in transition and um, um, it was a time of uh, tremendous turmoil. And so that's when I started. I had been to Russia before 1991, just out of curiosity, but at least this is the starting point for the Soviet Union. Now I'm gonna brush through this pretty quickly because it has to do with some of the topics I wanna make sure we touch on in the, in the kind of the second portion of the discussion. but. Uh, I, I, I did have personal experiences with, with corruption in, uh, in uh, Russia. I'll tell you two short vignettes just to let you know. And that was, uh, I mean, I've, like almost everybody in Russia at one time or another, they're pulled over by the, the street cops and uh, they're waved over and um, they either want to be paid or they will uh, arrest you. And that's whether you were speeding or not or whether you were making a right turn correctly or not. It's just stuff that happened, and it happened on two different occasions with me when I was there in, um, in, the, early, in the early 90s. <clears throat> I also had another episode in 1995, I believe it was, where uh, I was walking down the street, Tamarskaya Street, a main street, a main thoroughfare in Moscow, and I was walking uh, with a fellow named David Kennedy, who was then um, worked for the U.S. Embassy 
he was a guy who was about uh, six feet uh, tall, um, and we're walking down to Barskaya Street, and um, two army soldiers, these were not policemen, but army soldiers carrying um, heavy weapons, uh, walk in front of us, and I, uh, I, I do, as a practical matter, I don't speak Russian. <coughs> These uh, uh, soldiers, two soldiers, uh, told David Kennedy, the guy I was with, that they uh, uh, had to talk to us, and they walked us down an alley, uh, right, uh, a walkway right off of uh, Tavarskaya Street. And they pushed us kind of uh, in a little bit of a corner uh, where we actually couldn't be seen from the street, and uh, they started talking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I'm kind of listening there, and I'm following a little bit. You know, it's not a nice conversation. And um, I, uh, in, the, in the midst of this, I asked uh, David, I said, what's going on? He said, they want money. And I, they, they bantered back and forth a little bit more. And uh, I said, well, what, what do they want? How, what do they want? And he said, and I can't remember how much it was, but that was back in, 33 or 40 rubles per dollar or something like that. And they wanted some minuscule amount of money. It was really a modest amount of money. And as this is going back and forth, and it lasts four or five minutes, um, I told David, I said, look, David, I'll, I'll pay you, okay? Buy you, it's called five dollars. I'll pay David. And I says, no, no. He brushed, kind of brushed me aside. And they continued to go back and forth. David pulled out his phone, uh, and he did have a, uh, uh, a uh, cell phone back then when they were first coming out. And uh, the minute he pulled that out, they walked away. What he was going to do and what he told me he had told them is, he's going to call the embassy. And uh, the gig is up. So I asked him afterwards, I said, why, why didn't you just pay me the five bucks? And he said, look at me, Sid. I'm 6'6". Six, six. I'm a black man. I'm the only six foot six black man in Moscow. Every time I walk down the street, they're going to hit me up for money. And I can't handle that. And so that, that was just an, an, an example rampant and how street level some of the uh, corruption was. And there are, I'm sure you've always uh, all heard various different stories about stuff like that. Anyhow, my background is primarily working with the judges of the Supreme Commercial Court, the Supreme Arbitrage Court. Uh, probably 75% of my work was with the, the Supreme uh, Commercial Court. And we focused on bankruptcy because Russia was attempting to implement um, good commercial and business laws and bankruptcy laws because it was transitioning in a very difficult uh, period to a market economy. And uh, in fact, uh, Professor Henley could uh, speak uh, probably much better than I can the kind of trials and tribulations the Russians had to go through and are going through still, actually, uh, trying to implement the features of the instruments of uh, an effective competitive market economy. And uh, so I worked with them, but I also worked with various different law schools, primarily Moscow State University, Lomonosov, the law school there. 
And uh, so that's my, my framework. From the, that's the prism with which I have been able to see what, what has gone on over the course of the years. Um, I'm going to skip on corruption in Russia, history and context. Um, I think you all know Russia has a long and uh, colorful history of uh, corruption uh, and the fact that it is uh, um, uh, more prevalent than uh, a market economy should have. Um, it's intrinsic in much of the economic culture that has predominated uh, Russia. And arguably, Russia has had um, a, a level of corruption for not just generations, but for many hundreds of years. Um, in terms of corruption, I, I would conclude by saying that the Russian legal system, as well as the economic and financial world, the property and business world, and the Russian judicial system are fraught with petty corruption and as well major corruption. That's kind of a bottom line with the, from what I am able to see. Now, um, I already explained to you, my framework has been business law and bankruptcy law and dealing with judges and dealing with law schools. Although, I must tell you, I, I did deal with a good number of attorneys and attorney organizations um, in, uh, in Russia. B uh, before 1991, I went to Russia out of just curiosity. I was um, kind of a, a, a history geek or something like that. And I simply went to Russia out of curiosity to see how it functioned. I learned a whole lot in the 70s and uh, mid-80s for um, um, Gorbachev, um, and it was a it was a tough world, and I'm sure some of you can talk much better and much more knowledgeable about it than I am. But I had in really interesting personal experiences uh, that um, illustrated what uh, the Soviet Russia was. Um, I was a judge for 28 years, from uh, 1988 uh, to 2016. Um, I won't get into that, but again, I say that just so it gives you the framework from which I am um, looking at things. Um, it's important for you to understand, I love going to Russia. I have loved the experience I've had. I'm a judge. I'm a legal Um, but I have some affinity for the work I've been able to do since 1991. I just find Russian history and uh, the people and uh, everything about it interesting um, and stimulating and enlightening. So I really am a, uh, if you will, I'm a, I'm a friend of Russia um, and, and an admirer of so much uh, of what is Russian. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, as you will see, I have, uh, have certain reservations and uh, certain uh, problems. Now, um, my work, I'm going through this fairly quick. 
quickly and directly so I can get to some of the other stuff. My work in the early 1990s, the US government started working very hard and devoting enormous amounts of resources to trying to work with Russia as it was to be transitioning from a market economy to a market economy from a state-controlled, central-controlled uh, economy. Um, they were sending over lots of different people to interact with various different professionals, people who knew about government, people who knew about journalism, people who knew about the business world and how to build entrepreneurship, uh, how to build then <laughs> newspapers, but how to do things in a way that was more attuned to Western practices and procedures. And it wasn't just the US government that started pouring huge sums of money into these kinds of exchange programs. But it was uh, the World Bank, uh, IMF, the American Bankruptcy, uh, excuse me, American Bar Association. Uh, 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 judges started going over there, and that's when I got uh, involved in it, quite by accident, quite by good luck. The uh, University of Denver Stern College of Law, which is where I uh, do a good deal of my work in what we, is known as the Nanda Center for International and Comparative Law. Um, uh, there's just America and American NGOs and international organizations started working with Russia and Russians in a serious and extended, substantive way to try and deal with them as they transition into a more Western-oriented market and democratic governance, um, which is what, at the time, um, Russians uh, wanted and uh, were seeking to work towards. At least that was my view. Um, and that occurred very much through the 90s uh, and in, in, into the beginning of the 2000s. Um, but uh, it should be understood that there were lots of efforts, good faith efforts, to work with Russia as it became more increasingly more uh, open and more uh, accepting and more accommodating of uh, the Western economic model, the Western legal models, uh, Western educational models, and uh, there was a great deal of exchange on many different, uh, many different levels. Um, I think it was Churchill, at least I've been told that, is the guy who said that Russia is a riddle, is a, a mystery wrapped in a, a riddle inside an enigma. Um, I happen to think it's actually a little worse than that. I think it's uh, Russia being is, is inconsistencies wrapped in contradictions inside a paradox. Um, it's very difficult to understand Russia. To this day, I don't pretend to understand Russia. I, I love it, but I don't necessarily understand it. And so many of my Russian friends, they're not sure they understand it either. But, uh, but it, is, it is what it is, and we all have to work with it as it is. I made my first trip there. Uh, to the Russian Law Academy. 
I would describe it to you at some length, uh, uh, but um, I'm not going to because there are other more important topics to talk about. But I can tell you the Russian Law Academy, which was the academy for teaching judges, training judges, was um, a, a big building, a big building with, um, in 1991, uh, with broken windows, with toilets that didn't work, uh, with beds that were hard, uh, that was very cold at night. Um, it wasn't what you would expect from a training facility for a group of professionals so important to the Russian community, to the Russian government, to society in, in the whole, in the main. It was a really rough place. And that was an eye-opening experience going there. It was very rough. And uh, it certainly didn't match or come close to matching what I was then used to as to how American judges uh, were trained, what their facilities were like, what their courts were like, what the um, uh, professional uh, ambiance or professional aura was within which they were uh, to work. And when I went over there, I might add, whoops, excuse me. That was what was on the street. In at the end of 1991. And uh, those are uh, some uh, uh, federal judges there and uh, uh, a fellow from an organization called Open World over there. Uh, these are all uh, federal judges. And this just happened to be a lady who was standing in the middle of the picture of Russia. <laughs> and so I thought, what a wonderful opportunity to sneak a picture in there of her. And uh, so that's what things were like. When we went over there, there was still uh, great angst, tension, uncertainty, uh, confusion. Uh, 1991 was a rough year, and it was rougher uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, but that so, was so. Sid, when you were at this uh, at the at the law academy there, did I assume people asked you what you thought of the facilities? Yes, let me let me get to another picture there. That's another picture of what was on the streets. Yeah. It, it was just a, quite a place. Um, and you notice those are barricades that they used in World War II. Yeah. Uh, they brought those out uh, in order to keep people uh, uh, under wraps. And uh, this is the uh, Russian Law Academy that we visited. This was the director of the uh, academy, uh, really a good guy. And uh, this was a room that had about 125 um, Russian judges. And uh, they were meeting, and this was the first meeting they'd ever had with American judges. And again, I won't go into the details, but it, for me, it was a, a passion drama. It was powerful. The Russians were talking and debating amongst themselves what were they going to do as they developed because it was a new world and they knew a new world was coming and they talked about the importance they talked about the importance of independent judicial systems 
They talked about the role of the judge. They talked about how things ought to be. And they also talked about how things were. And the American judges really lit it up. This was a, the gentleman who at the time was the uh, Chief Justice of the Washington State Supreme Court. So we had a state court judge, and four federal judges, a bankruptcy judge, and uh, district court <coughs> district court judges. To answer your question, um, I'm not sure, I don't recall voicing an opinion or being asked to voice an opinion about the quality of their facilities. And I didn't say anything, and nobody else I know said anything. So that was that was uh, just something that was the way it was. I know it was really cool. And, uh, but change did occur. Change did occur. Oh, here's uh, the, uh, again, 1991. That's the director of the Russian Law Academy. And we gave him a t-shirt. You know, things were quite different in 1991 as opposed to now. And uh, uh, so it, it was uh, quite, an, uh, quite an adventure. Um, that's a, a picture of the uh, Chief Justice of the Russian uh, uh, Supreme Court. And this is a uh, picture of the uh, Chief Judge of the Moscow District Court um, that uh, we were able to visit with. And they showed us their courts and stuff like that. Um, Okay, here's where I'd like to break off a little bit, please. The Russian court system had courts of general jurisdiction, which was the very significant uh, workhorse of the Russian legal system. And roughly speaking, I think they had about 35,000, maybe 40,000 judges at all different levels th spread throughout all 10 time zones. Um, uh, and, but I was working with the uh, arbitrage courts, the commercial courts, and that consisted totally of about 3,000 judges. It grew to about 3,500 over the years. Um, again, spread out all over the country. And they had a supreme commercial court of about 30, between 30 and 35 judges. And they sit in panels generally, generally of three but sometimes they would sit uh, on banc uh, on particular issues, on banc meaning in the hole. Uh, and uh, so that was, that, was my, uh, that was my area. I think it's important to keep in mind at the baseline for this conversation. The Supreme Commercial Court was a separate court, and it proved to be itself and its leadership to want to reform. To want to reform to become an independent court, a court that would be transparent, a court that would be professional, a court that would be um, uh, imbued with continuing education programs, a, a court that was willing to reform and at least take a look, if not adopt, certain Western practices. And remember, I'm talking primarily about business and commercial uh, and property types of issues, something that the Russians really wanted to become more integrated into the uh, world uh, 
financial and uh, business and economic um, spheres. And uh, so the, the, the Russian commercial, commercial court, the Supreme Commercial Court, is uh, a court that wanted change and worked toward change. That's kind of a bottom line determination. Um, and, and, and let me make sure you understand. I'm talking formally, uh, uh, primarily, about uh, legal reform. And let's talk about a, a, a flyover at about 30,000 feet and talk about legal reform between 1991 and, and 2018. Um, when I went there in 1991, I already described to you the Russian Law Academy. Well, I can tell you their courts were very much the same. Russian courts under the Soviet system were unimportant. They were almost an aside. They had very limited jurisdiction. They um, arguably, I don't want to say it so it's a demeaning fashion, but at least in our eyes and the way we look at things, in some ways they were more like uh, arbitrators or some would say clerks. They focused primarily on disputes and differences between entities. Uh, they were not particularly well educated in terms of the law, with strong legal backgrounds. Um, uh, and this is somewhat telling. There were more female arbitrage court judges at the trial level than males. And part of the reason was because jobs weren't very important. They got, you know, the jobs were there. The courts in the Soviet system were almost an aside. You just weren't important. It was the government that counted. And the government embraced the executive, the party, and it embraced, uh, to some degree, the legislative. But the courts, not, not, not so important. And uh, they didn't uh, make uh, policy, and they didn't dictate what was and was not unconstitutional. And I, I don't know if any of you ever read the old Soviet Constitution, but it's a masterpiece of work. The problem was they didn't follow their Constitution, but it was, it was good law, it was just ignored. And, and, and that's just the way the Soviet system was run. Uh, so the condition of the courts and the condition of the facilities between 1991 2018 has enormously improved. A lot more money has been directed to the courts than in the past. It is some recognition that the courts have a valuable and important role to play in governance in a modern society. And so today, when you walk into their facilities, usually, but not always, and particularly in Moscow and the big cities, but not necessarily in the outlying areas, courts are much better off. They have more money, they have more resources, they have more personnel. They are, to the degree they're able, becoming increasingly automated, uh, adopting automation systems. And so there's been a pretty good effort there. So Sid, when you guys would go over there, did you talk to them about how to organize a court building? Because one of the things that's changed is it used to be that you could drop into any court any judge into these chambers, you know, without, you know, there were no filters at all. 
And now they have these systems set up where you have to have key cards to get in, you know, for, is that something that you guys suggested to them or? Well, we would, we would talk about those things. We uh -huh. talk about security. We talked about the importance of judicial independence and not being accessible by yeah. individually, uh, directly, by litigants, by yeah. anybody. Did you talk about having a separate lunchroom? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, always. Yeah. Always. And one thing we emphasized again and again and again, one of the, one of the uh, foundations of our discussions were, your courts have to be independent. Your judges have to be above reproach you have. You should be, uh, um, uh, avoid conflicts of interest and the appearance of impropriety. Of conflict, and there were plenty of uh, there was a lot of aberrational conduct under the Soviet system and bleeding into the beginning of the system as they were trying to design it in the early 90s. Um, did that answer your question? Well, I mean, just the, the very setup of the courts, you know, the way in which they almost the geography of the buildings, you know, the architecture of them, and that's striking when with all this new money that went into them that they've not only made them much plusher, but they've also dealt with the appearance of impropriety, right? Yeah. In terms yes. of not yes. being able to get to judges unless you should be getting to judges. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. The answer is yes, and yes, and yes. And you guys talked about that? Yes, we talked about that sort of thing. We, we talked about so many different things. And I think it's important to note, at least the judges I worked with, we did not go over there and tell them how to set up a uh, judicial system. We did not go over there and tell them how judges should act or not act. We went over there and said, this is the way we do it, at least in our system. It seems to work for us for the most part. Um, it serves, heck, not a, a, a perfect system. But this is what we do and how we do it. And uh, we're satisfied with this. We're not so satisfied with that. Um, and they would usually be rather receptive. Um, and they often would try to adopt various different things that we're, we were doing. But just one minute. Um, Having said that, I think you know, or at least for those of you who have been to Russia, um, Russians are very independent in their own way. They want to do it in the manner they think is best. And I can tell you my own personal experience, starting over in 1991 and 1992, we worked on drafting a new bankruptcy law. And uh, I worked with Vasily Vitriansky, who was the vice chairman of the Supreme uh, Commercial Court, and others. Um, and, and we would throw ideas at him, and we would debate. We did this for quite some time, actually. And they, and they passed a law in 1992, the first bankruptcy law ever. And when I saw the final product, I just I could hardly stand up. It just didn't make sense. But they thought it made sense. They were going to craft something together that fit Russia. And uh, regardless of what the Americans or the Japanese or the Brits or the Canadians um, uh, would say, they were going to do it their way. And they produced a law that was totally unworkable. But it was a Russian law built on us. They were able to build it with the bricks given to them and were shared with them by uh, uh, Western uh, legal experts. Yes, sir. So I'm wondering, you talked about the IMF, and I know that there have been a lot of criticisms of the IMF, um, like the restrictions that they put on people when they lend them money. Uh -huh. um, so do you know offhand like what 
that money and how they might have done it differently in the same time? Well, I can't speak personally from the IMF's experience. Uh, I, was, I was simply sailing there periodically to work with them with no strings attached. The World Bank, however, I did work with on various different occasions over some years. And the World Bank did the same thing. And uh, the Russians pushed back sometimes really hard, really hard. And because of that, the World Bank withheld funding. Uh, so during the course of over time, more and more money was approved. Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. But the World Bank was interested in trying to get rid of some of the graft, some of the waste. And uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, I think it was positive, the fact that it was conditional money. Because uh, the World Bank gave a lot of money. And stories of corruption. Stories of corruption, which we're not going to go into uh, right, uh, right yet. Um, the, the role and status of judges. I already told you about the role and status. Wait, so before you do that, can you go back to the bankruptcy law? Because you had this 92 law that didn't work. Sure. And then they had, a, what, a 98-99 law that they, that they passed that did grease the skids. And then you had huge numbers of bankruptcies. Were you guys working with them through that whole period? Yes. And you were talking, I mean, because there was this period where everybody was bartering because you really couldn't bank, nobody, there was no, the, the law was on the books, but it didn't work. And so, That's right. and were they, the judges realized what was going on in factories and? Well, the, the 1992 law was really not for individuals. No, it no, was, no, I'm talking about factories. I'm talking yeah, about Yeah, it was not a consumer bankruptcy yeah, law. Yeah, we didn't have that until recently. Until yeah. very recently, three yeah. years ago, four years ago. Um, Yes, they were constantly recognizing that the system wasn't working. People were filing too late in the process, so they couldn't save any businesses. Or there was a lot of fraud, there was a lot of hidden assets, there was a lot of games playing as the bankruptcy law was being implemented. One of the games that was being played, and it's not a game at all, is where a creditor or uh, a crook or entity that was out to uh, satisfy its own needs and desires would uh, file a bankruptcy case against a smaller business or a business and use the bankruptcy court to take the business over. And it discredited the entire bankruptcy system. And what you said is absolutely correct. They kept recognizing this system isn't working the way it's supposed to work. And so they were, they had, I think they had a 1995 well, 1998 revision. And they have finally refined it. So <clears throat> at least it's a system that one, isn't as easily abused, and two, is being administered by people that are more skillful and experienced and educated in the law and in bankruptcy law, particularly. Um, and it's um, a much improved product. And uh, to some degree, it matches some of the other systems, the bankruptcy systems. They've had the same problems, by the way, in most every area of the law, where they draft some stuff, they tinker with it, they revise it, and they tinker with it some more, and they revise it, and it uh, eventually comes out. So it it's, can be very sensible and can be very workable if it's implemented in the manner in 
which you would hope it would be in, implemented. Um, and we'll, we'll try and, and, and talk about that just a little bit. Um, resources, I already, I already mentioned to you the resources. Vast amounts of resources. And the status of judges has improved immensely. The quarters that judges now have, their courtrooms, their chambers, their income, significant because that helps uh, try to deter graft and buying off judges. And so they've significantly increased the wages of the judges who were getting wages that arguably clerks only got under the Soviet system. So that's a grand change. And their status is, is bigger and better and higher. So it's a more attractive and uh, prestigious position to have than before. Did you have another question? Oh, I have endless questions, but go on. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, jury trials. Now, at one time, back in the mid-90s, they started talking about implementing jury trials. And it's kind of been a, uh, like a wave where they try to implement it, and then they decide, now nah, it's too much trouble, or it's too expensive, or it gets in the way of what we want to do. Um, and so off and on, there's been implementation of jury trials and not. Uh, when I was back and had conversations with two uh, attorneys who I had great respect for, they told me that uh, jury trials were being implemented increasingly. And so that's my understanding. I don't know that to be a fact. Um, it, you know, that working with juries can be pretty tough and complicated administratively tricky and it makes a judge's job sometimes harder rather than easier. So I don't know how successful they are in doing it, but I, I'm told two years ago, the most recent information I had, and I hadn't been over it for a year and a half and had this kind of conversation. But yes? Yes, so <laughs> with the jury trial, do they implement them for a specific type of cases? Yes. Uh, uh, for specific kinds of cases, and particularly for uh, significant uh, uh, criminal cases, uh, which I think, by the way, they've modified since they implemented it, uh, and uh, for some civil cases. Uh, and I can't tell you today what the dividing line is, what cases get tried by juries and which don't. Um, but I do know there have been many judges that are interested in seeing how they work. By the way, during this whole time of the 90s and early 2000s, there were American professionals going over to Russia and spending time, like Professor Hedlund, and there were Russian judges coming over here, and I mean a pretty good number of them, hundreds of them, and they'd spend a week or two weeks, uh, uh, maybe even uh, three weeks, and they'd go and spend time with the court in Atlanta spend uh, time in Washington, D.C., and then maybe a third state. The idea is to um, let them observe the American legal system and talk with other judges and talk with attorneys on how our system functions, uh, what's to like about it, what's not to like about it. Uh, so there's just a lot going on back and forth, a lot of interaction. So did you have those kind of judges come to your court? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, the Chief Justice, in fact, I have a, a picture that I'll come to in a little bit. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Commercial Court 
came to Denver and spent a week with us. And we had roundtable discussions with our judges, with some attorneys, with bankruptcy trustees, and with the Chief Justice and some of their Supreme Court justices. Um, and, and so they really got exposed to stuff in a serious way, and they took it seriously. They were very interested, they were very uh, engaged. Um, transcribing of hearings, uh, that was never done. Transcription was ridiculous. Uh, no reason to keep a record of what goes on in court, uh, certainly under the Soviet system, but um, there is both the practice and the reality of uh, preparing transcriptions of hearings in court. Now, it's a somewhat slow process, it can be expensive, and can be a bit complicating for trials and stuff like that, but um, transcription and having histories, verbatim histories of trials is something that is being rolled out uh, over time, and especially because automation systems are so much better than what, what, they, uh, what they used to be. Um, and, 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 and so what I'm trying to tell you is between 1991 and, and 2018, vast changes in how the courts were built, operated, and how they treated uh, people. Um, oh, uh, public access. The courts really weren't, uh, if you will, open to the public. The public wasn't really invited to appear. Um, process of giving notice, advance notice, to people who were litigating um, was really somewhat haphazard. Often it was just by publication. And we talked about the importance of due process, having notice. I mean, that's critical. You can't have a functioning judicial system without having parties knowing what's going on, having advance notice when hearings uh, are to be held and when things are due, um, and so that's another thing that we emphasized greatly. And of course, the concept of due process is so fundamental to the system that we think it works well. Um, and so we would, would constantly talk about that as a feature. Um, publication of opinions. You know, they didn't used to uh, really publish opinions at all. They'd write them out in a book, and I, I literally saw courts where they had the history or the record of court decisions put into binders that were sewn um, instead of having a binding system. They're still sewn. Yeah. Uh, now, I haven't seen any mm -hmm. as of late. Still sewn. That's how basic the system was and evidently is in some places. Now, certainly not in Moscow or St. Petersburg or the big cities that I'm aware of. Are they sewing in Moscow? I haven't. Okay. Thank you. And I ask uh, the professor to correct me every time she heard me say something that she thought was inaccurate. And, and they, they don't understand why we don't sew. Why we don't sew? Yeah. Because the whole idea is that then you know it's part of the, this, the, the record. Oh. It's very hard to get it out then, right? So it's an anti-corruption measure. Whereas oh. if you just had a binder clip, you could very easily take it out and put something else in. Okay. But if it's sewn in, then it's harder to, to monkey around with it. Okay. And that illustrates something that I think is really kind of important. 
any, um, Professor Headley and I had this conversation before. Um, you know, you can change all the laws in the world. You can write good laws. You can develop statutory language that is um, precise and, and clear. But if you don't change the legal culture and change legal practices, you're not going to make much progress. So it's not just changing laws. It's not just changing statutes. Legislature that puts out the right, the good language. To change things in a deep and abiding way, you've got to change the culture. And the Russian legal culture is not one steeped in what we at least think are good procedures, good practices, embodying uh, transparency, embodying uh, uh, fair balance, and very objective uh, judges. And accountability. Um, so th that's just something that is, is what it is. Uh, they now publish opinions, and they publish um, minority opinions. So, like in our Supreme Court, if you have a five-four decision, or if you have a eight-one decision, um, you get a minority opinion typically. So you at least know what the other side, the losing side, was arguing. Every once in a while, the losing side ends up being the right side, and it may take 20 years or it may take 100 years. But sometimes uh, the losing side ultimately prevails because that, that's the, you know, society develops and grows, hopefully improves, and sometimes not necessarily. But they publish opinions. Automation, uh, now um, a lot of money has gone into automation. Professor Headley is obviously right. There's still some backwater places in Moscow and, and outside of Moscow, and I certainly would understand it in the countryside or the, the larger districts. Um, but I know they they take great pride in having automated systems, and so they have devoted a lot of money. I'm, I know I, I don't know how much the world bank has given them, but a bunch of money, tons of money, and it's gone towards judicial reform. Um, during the 90s and the earlier 2000s, Russia was really seemingly working assiduously to make some serious changes in the legal system and, based on my view, beyond. They were at least the ones I worked with, and at the Supreme Commercial Court, they were serious. They worked hard. They wanted to change. They did work with us. But things have changed since uh, roughly 2008, but certainly since 2012. And there has been, for lack of a better term, backsliding. There's been change in attitude, there's been a change in uh, structure of the courts, and which it's significant change, not just little changes on the margins. Let me tell you about the uh, Supreme Commercial Court. Um, I have a number of things I wanted to tell you. 
But let me just give you the bottom line, and that is what I've already told you. The Supreme Commercial Court is interested in changing the Supreme Commercial Court and the appellate commercial courts and the trial commercial courts. They wanted to adopt automation. They wanted to have greater transparency. They were publishing minority and majority opinions. They were doing a, a great variety of things which we would consider to be good judicial governance. They had an international orientation. They were exchanging and interacting with foreign legal professionals on a significant uh, basis. Um, they were very different from the courts of general jurisdiction in important ways. The courts of general jurisdiction were not nearly as engaged in the process of reform. They were not nearly as eager to genuinely, the operative term is genuinely, work with foreign judges, foreign judicial systems. They were really quite a great deal more satisfied with the systems they had in place and the philosophy and judicial culture that they had in place. Now, they wanted all the automation they could get. They wanted uh, certain things. They did and have changed in certain ways. They have much more uh, beautiful courts. Lots of the mechanical, brick and mortar stuff for the courts of general jurisdiction has improved greatly. But they never quite got to changing practices and procedures and philosophy like the Supreme Commercial Court did. And you started, oh, the, another thing they were doing periodically, is they were actually ruling. Their independence was being asserted. And they were ruling against the government, periodically, on cases, on tax issues, on tax questions. And uh, that was kind of irritating to the government. Um, but they were acting increasingly judicial, more and more transparent, uh, with greater independence publishing their opinions, trying to do at least what we here in this country think is a, a judicial system that has principles that uh, are good governance principles. Uh, it clashed with the government. I was sponsored uh, for some years uh, to go over there by the U.S.-Russia Foundation. The U.S.-Russia Foundation poured a lot of money and a lot of talent um, into um, working with their judges um, uh, and supporting all kinds of programs, not just legal type programs. But things changed uh, after 2012, and that's not a sharp line of demarcation, by the way, but um, the, the pressure became serious and severe on NGOs from other countries, on organizations, Russian organizations, that were using foreign money. And uh, long story short, in uh, August of 2015, after a several year pro 
project or prospect or, or uh, uh, process, um, the Supreme Commercial Court of Russia was abolished. Now the Constitution says you cannot fire a Supreme Court judge. The Constitution says nothing about eliminating the court. So that's what the Duma, that's what the Parliament, the Russian Parliament did. They just eliminated the court. They got rid of those who were leading an effort to become increasingly independent and uh, be judges. Now, of the th roughly 35 judges on the Supreme Commercial Court, when it was abolished, they were invited to apply to be placed on the Supreme Court of General Jurisdiction. Because it was that court, the Court of General Jurisdiction, which was going to take all the appeals from the arbitrage court. So the idea was take the talent from the Supreme Commercial Court, which has the commercial court expertise, and just transplant it over there. Well, as I understand it, one out of all of the Supreme Commercial Court judges was actually given a position on the Supreme Court of General Jurisdiction. Think about that. They eliminated a reform-minded court with good leadership trying to do what most think is the right thing, and they just cut it off. And so now the courts of general the Supreme Court of General Jurisdiction handles all appeals. And as I indicated to you before, philosophically and operationally and uh, culturally, the Supreme Court of General Jurisdiction has never really embraced the kinds of reforms we're talking about. As a matter of fact, and, and uh, Professor, you can perhaps correct me, um, the Chief Justice of the Court of General Jurisdiction was given by Mr. Putin and his party, uh, they changed the Constitution to give him life tenure. Why? Well, because he was a good guy as far as the party was concerned and part of Mr. Putin was concerned. So they gave him life tenure. Is he still alive? I think he is. Yeah. Okay. He was in a serious car accident. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. In, in Africa. Okay. Serious car accident. But they changed the law so he could spend the rest of his life on, on the courts. Now, keep one thing in mind, please. I understand the wisdom and the arguable position that a single Supreme Court for all issues, like we have, is a reasonable position. It makes sense. If you want generalists um, having a final say on all judicial questions and disputes, fine. That's arguable, and we do it, and we think, seem to think it works well for us. And bankruptcy opinions go through several layers and they end up in the U.S. Supreme Court. So I understand that. But I guarantee you there's not a Russian I know in the legal community, and it's a pretty good number of people, in the law schools, in, uh, among faculty, um, among judges, 
who think that that was a policy that was put into effect because it's a good policy. It was a policy that was put into effect to eliminate the reformers in the judicial community. And I can't tell you the number of conversations I had with what a powerful move that was by the uh, administration, getting rid of the, the Supreme Commercial Court. Everybody recognized what it was, and it certainly sent a message everywhere and down the line. Do thing, don't get ahead of the government when it comes to reform, and the government will set the pace and the tone for reform. Um, that in and of itself, using government power to eliminate a institution that is otherwise functioning pretty darn well, that goes to the very heart or the very definition of corruption, government corruption. And uh, to me, that says so much, and to the professionals I've worked with over the years, they're unanimous in understanding, and, and among the attorneys I know who practice in uh, Moscow, uh, both American uh, as well as uh, Russian attorneys, everybody knew what was going on, and uh, it sent a message everywhere. Okay, um, finally, uh, for in, in terms of corruption, there's petty corruption, of course, the kinds of things I told you about, and there's uh, major corruption. Um, and I, I, I tried to write out what I think the, the framework and the uh, substance of corruption today is in good measure, but not entirely. When the interests, power, or authority of the Russian government are affected or are to be impacted, then the courts and the judicial system are subject to the pressures, influence, and interference which will override the independence of the judiciary. I think that's a fair and accurate statement. Somebody else could say, look, I, I happen to know something, a little something about the Russian legal system, and I think you're wrong. I think it's a fair statement. It's also not inappropriate to meld a little bit, at least. The economic powers of Russia are still able to call some shots and to affect the judiciary and to corrupt it. Um, you know, one, one example is uh, the story of Yukos, the oil company. Uh, but that started some years ago, and that uh, really evolved out of uh, political struggle. Um, but uh, it, it, it's, the, it's the government not tolerating competition or simply choosing to exert its authority. And when it chooses to exert its authority, it will prevail. I think that's kind of a bottom line. Is there otherwise fairness in the uh, arbitrage courts? Yeah, um, the 
your regular run-of-the-mill vanilla cases, I think the judges there are probably trying to do a good job. They try to be more educated. Um, they um, have a higher standard now. Um, um, and I think often they try to do the right thing. Unfortunately, there's still, however, a measure of corruption, high and low, in Russia. 